And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17 in our series, Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow. But this morning, Revelation chapter 17, beginning with verse 1, and this is the Word of God. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the, in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, that had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And dwells on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life. From the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and it is not, and it is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the city woman is seated. They all are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction." The ten horns you saw are ten kings and have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over the power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they, are the, uh, they and the, the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up under, with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose, being of one mind, and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that this is your word. It's true and it's certain. We need your spirit's help now to grasp what you're saying, Father, to us. How to apply us the way we live here and now, we would ask. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The city of Rome ruled a vast, multicultural, melting pot empire that covered 193 million square miles, uh, some 40 modern nations, 65 million people, one in four on planet Earth in those days. It was a vast marketplace for trading both commerce and ideas. The Roman roads built to transport their army allowed people to move about freely and easily. Uh, really for the first time in human history. Those roads are still used in some places. If you've been to Bulgaria, you've probably walked on one of them. Uh, for wealthy Romans in particular, 
Life was good. They lived in beautiful houses, primarily on the hills surrounding Rome, away from the noise and the smell of the city below. They had an extravagant lifestyle. They had fancy clothes and luxurious furnishings. They had servants and slaves that catered their every whim and desire. A perverse standard of sexuality ruled the day. And for the most part, the first century Romans worshipped the emperor or other gods and not the God of the Bible. So when we come to Revelation 17, the verdict on Rome has already been given by God himself in chapter 16. Because it ended with the seventh bowl of God's wrath being poured out on the whole world. And was accompanied by God's cry, it is done. Yet, you might have noticed your Bible has six more chapters to go. So the book's not over. Uh, And uh, in chapter 17 to 19, John goes back and gives us a closer look at how God pours out his wrath uh, in those latter bowls. uh, And how it's going to impact the glory that was Rome and all that it represents in its rebellion against God. So to see all that where the glory's gone, let's, let's go to the text. First, just some preliminary points to help us make sense of what's happening here. One could say that this is the story of two women. Now, we've seen that motif in Scripture before. You go back to Proverbs. You have the woman of the world, the woman of the streets, who, who calls out to the young men as they come by and tries to seduce them. And then you have the voice of wisdom personified as a woman as well who calls out to the young men and and desires that they listen to her. And so we've seen this before. Here we have one woman clearly called the great prostitute. Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. But if one will not worship God, because we're made for worship, we'll worship someone or something else. In that sense, Rome or Babylon is a counterfeit church. It's what Satan offers to a world uh, that does not embrace the church, that does not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the worship of the godless world. Babylon seduces the world to worship the counterfeit trinity that we've seen here in Revelation. Uh, The dragon, the beast, the false prophet. The Old Testament illustrates that worship and talks about in terms of spiritual sexual immorality. People to turn into other gods for a relationship to have rather than the true God. So we'll watch the church be attacked by promiscuity, power, persecution. They'll seek to destroy the the purity of the church with material prosperity, worldly power, and sex. The struggle will be that the Roman emperor attracted uh, people not just because of his power, but because of the benefits that he gave to people. We've seen that emperor worship was politically expedient, but was also economically a good decision to make. Modern society offers that same seduction It makes the same demands that one worship the state. We see that with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, departments and corporations. We see it with ESG, environment, social, and governance ratings, forcing corporations, if they want to compete in the marketplace, to give themselves over 
to the worship of the government. Personally, we face the same temptations in our culture. The sirens of sexual rebellion are calling out. The thirst for wealth and things. The thirst to be powerful or popular. An influencer, if you will, uh, as we look for approval on social media. So give me that whole deluge of information. Let's go then to see the angel showing John this great prostitute in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So John sees the prostitute, she said, on many waters. Now, we're not left to try to figure out what this is on our own. We get on down the page and we read, for one, that the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, that reference historically looking back is Babylon. We're told it was situated on the waters. That's a reference to, at first, to the Euphrates River. Most of the world's oldest great cities are on rivers. Given this is an angel uh, who just poured out a bowl of wrath, we get a strong hint that, again, it's about the judgment against the glory that was Rome. So we say Rome rather than Babylon because John's readers would have referred to, to, Babylon, to Rome as Babylon, the great city in their day. We refer here to the city on seven hills. That's Rome. But Rome and Babylon are, are merely, may merely serve to represent all the great cities of the world. Whether you look back to, to Ur, to Nineveh, to Babylon, to Rome, or, or you look around today uh, and you see New York, Tokyo, London, Rio, Atlanta. All the great cities. These cities are the ancient and modern day towers of Babel, seeking their own glory, where people seek to make a name for themselves rather than make much of the name of God. This is modern day humanity. This is government longing for fame. So why are they so attractive? Why are they described as a prostitute? Because a prostitute seeks to seduce passers-by to something that can never fulfill anything. So the world seeks to draw people away from God and the church and onto a pathway to destruction. Seed on many waters, we're told below, that's the, that means the tribes and the languages and peoples and nations. We're, we, we see the scope of the influence. Think of our own nation, the influence the cities have on the nation, the cities on the coast in particular. Again, the graphic language speaks of sexual immorality with the kings of the earth. Against the Old Testament imagery about the allure of the world, that people crave possessions and power and pleasure. We're told very plainly that the world's drunk with the wine of sexual immorality. And while we might be tempted just to treat that as a metaphor, for it surely is that, we've seen across history that rebellion against God often takes the form of sexual immorality. We saw that way back in Sodom and Gomorrah. Today we see that sexual deviancy is the, the ultimate form of rebellion against God. At the root of the worship of abortion, is claiming women have the same right as men not to be pregnant, seeking to allow people to engage in sexual activity uh, outside of marriage without any consequences. 
And that slippery slide into a moral abyss has continued as the culture has dared to redefine what marriage has been since the dawn of time. And now the culture is trying to tell us that being male or female is just a social construct. And hence we have naked men wandering through YMCA's bathrooms of young women and girls. We have the same in Ivy League colleges uh, where these men roam. And the NCAA and the Ivy League colleges had the audacity to tell the girls that complained, the women that complained, that they had a problem and they needed counseling. The world is an absolute denial of truth, of biological reality, and common sense. And sexual confusion in children is now the battleground for the state to strip parents of their parental rights. So the Marxist ideology that says children belong to the states, to the state and not to parents, has infiltrated our own nation. Friends, our nation is as drunk with the wine of sexual morality as first century Rome. Verse 3. And he carried me away into the spirit, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. One was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. And on the forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So John's taking the wilderness to observe this. And we've seen in Revelation that the wilderness is a safe place for the people of God. And as he looks at the woman, she's sitting on a scarlet beast. And yes, it's now the same beast that we saw back in chapter 13. So John describes the beast. He's red, identifies him with the dragon, with Satan himself. And there's blasphemous names for God written on him. These names show that the beast defies God's glory and honor. Instead, he claims he's to be worshipped instead of God. And then John looks at the woman. She allures the people with her lavish clothing, with her wealth, her splendor. She turns heads. She's a seducer of the world's affections. That gold cup she holds in her hand looks so attractive. But inside it's full of abominations and moral destruction. Perhaps the greatest abomination is the world's quest to really make the individual seem large and God seem very small or non-existent. To drink from that cup is to be destroyed. Again, the woman represents the power of the state, the power of human government. The power of the state brings wealth, but it also brings spiritual adultery against God. We are warned here, even as ancient Roman prostitutes wore the names of ribbons on their heads, what their names were here, the names caution us. Babylon the Great, the great city from Babel that that rebelled against God, the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Again, America's great city, the world's cities are in view here. But John's dealing with something more pervasive, more expansive more influential than just ancient cities. He's unfolding a control and influence of humanity that has the power to turn men's hearts away from God and toward idolatry. 
from the Creator to the creation. The worship of nations, of nature rather, we saw so much in antiquity and across the ages, it's full bloom in our world today. That's why they want to take away your gas stove. Rome, like ancient Babylon, grew prosperous. Phil Newton described it quite succinctly. They indulged their senses in, in food, drink, art, sports, music, entertainment, gratuitous violence in the Colosseum, and whatever else they desired. Brothels, harlots, and temple prostitutes were common sights. They lived with the attitude, it's all about me and my happiness and my pleasures. And that great heart lives on today. Has there been a time that rivals the indulgence and sensuality of every sort that we see in our day? The vast majority of people in our country alone are much more interested in satisfying their senses, gratifying their pleasures and indulging their desires than in following the crucified and risen Lord. The idols of our day have different temples than the first century. Sports stadiums and arenas, theaters and clubs, lakes and rivers, concerts and festivals, shopping malls and computer screens. Don't these things are necessarily evil themselves. The problem is these things become sources of idolatry. They turn our heads from the, away from the living God and numb us for our need of the Lord. And that's the spirit of the harlot. Friends, clearly, the greatest abomination is the, the nations, the kingdoms of this world are drunk not only with sexual morality, but they're drunk with the blood of martyrs as well, it says. The most notorious crime of all. What's in view is the persecution of the church. Persecution of God's people that grows daily. And so there's a message for these people. Pick it up in the last part of verse 6. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? So what does it mean John marvels? He marvels at the attractiveness of the woman. Uh, he's astonished by it. He, he, he sees how the world's attracted to her. And you know, sometimes we, we're shocked by the sexual perversity of our day. And why, why does that attract so many people? But as people have said, why are we surprised when Babylon acts like Babylon and people are drawn to it. Without God and without His Word and His Spirit, we too would be drawn to the world around us. And so we have to actively resist the call of Babylon. Then we learn more. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast you saw was and is not is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman seated. There are also seven kings. Five of them have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. When it does come, it must reign only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind. They have their authority, power and authority to the beast. So just like in chapter 13, the beast has seven heads and ten horns. Again, Sits on seven hills. We're told, first of all, readers that would think of Rome. 
Uh, now, here's the fact. A lot of people spend a lot of time trying to decide who these seven kings are. All right? You can find a lot of ink on that. Uh, who are these kingdoms across history? They try to count the Roman emperors. Do you count the partial reigns? Do you count the full reigns? Do you count the, you know, uh, they try to count the world's great empires. The fact is, whatever century you live in, you're, you're going to count different empires. All right? Now, I'm going to suggest to you that's an absolutely fruitless endeavor. All right? Instead, I'm going to ask you this. How many heads are there here? Come on, people. That wasn't hard. Seven. What is the number of completeness? Good. The number of ten has that same idea of completeness. So what I would suggest is the seven and the ten are the completeness of the opposition of world leaders and world governments against, against God across history. That John's not trying to get us to guess who these kings are. But rather, he's showing us how humanity rebels against God across the ages. Go back to Psalm 2. It's an ongoing rebellion against God and against His Son, King Jesus. And the point is, these kingdoms are gathered together in support of Satan to oppose God's kingdom. Friends, the kings of this world hate the church and do not keep looking to our government to support the church. And the beast tries to imitate Jesus. You recall Jesus described in chapter 1 as the one who was and who is and who is to come. And the beast adopts that. But notice now it's the one who was uh, and is not and is to come. What's the point? He's trying to imitate Jesus, to be sure. But to say he's not, that refers to the cross. He was crushed at the cross by Jesus. So he is not what Jesus is. And while Jesus will reign as king of kings, the beast will be sentenced forever to the great abyss. That's where he's going. And that sets the stage for verse 14. They will make war on the lamb, and the land will conquer them, lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now we'll see some more details of the final battle over in chapter 19. Right now we're assured of the outcome of the battle against the people of God, against the church. And that is the Lamb of God conquers. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And at times we wonder at Satan's power. Uh, We see the headlines. So God steps in and assures us of two things. First, He wins. But second, we are the chosen ones. We're the faithful ones. We're the called ones. We are loved before the dawn of time, as we sang this morning. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our identity is found hidden in Christ. God's sovereignty of our salvation is based on His goodness. It's based on His grace. It's based on His mercy. It's not what we earn. It's not about our performance. And so we sang, Jesus, I do now receive Him more than all in Him I find. He has granted me forgiveness. I am His. 
He is mine. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He's with me to the end. Friends, no one ever did care for you like Jesus. And so we read, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitutes seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The hidden horns that you saw there and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose, being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw was the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In the turmoil of the world's kingdoms being defeated by the Lamb, what we read is here is they will turn on each other. The kings of this world, as David Strain puts it, extends the, the reach of Babylon to every age and every land, is ultimately parasitic. What they've set up is, is destructive. Sin does that. It appears as wisdom. But for the beast and their horns and the prostitutes, as they learn anything they've set up will eventually turn against themselves. And they will destroy themselves. They will be defeated by King Jesus. So what about us? The worldly woman seeking to seduce the young men in the book of Proverbs is the same woman we see in Revelation 17, seeking to seduce us and the world around us. She's an alluring presence to be sure. The church is always tempted in every age to compromise in order to fit in with the spirit of the age. We as individuals are compromised and tempted to compromise as we hear the siren songs of the world around us. They woo us. And we must withstand the temptations of the world. We're called to live differently. Holiness is not optional. Walking by God's word really does matter. And so do grace and mercy when we stumble and fall that God always extends to us. That's what we're going to sing, He leadeth me. It reminds us that Jesus always shepherds us through this fallen world. And yes, the world's on a path to self-destruction. And they seek to destroy us. But it will turn on themselves. Friends, we know this. I look at and I listen to the news. And I'm often dismayed. Evil does seem to triumph. But what we read here is what? The Lamb triumphs. God wins. And that's the proclamation of the gospel we make today and all the days ahead until Jesus calls us home. The poet Robert Pollock wrote about his fellow poet, Lord Byron. Lord Byron lived a rather promiscuous, rebellious, sin-saturated life that ended at the age of of 36. To be sure, he had what the world offered. He had the money, he had the fame. But listen to what Pollock writes. He drank every cup of joy, heard every trumpet of fame, drank early, deeply drank, drank drafts that common millions might have quenched, then died of thirst because there was no more to drink. One can drink in all that the world has to offer. But it will never be enough. 
Oh, that someone would have pointed Lord Byron to the living water, to Jesus. And he never would have thirsted again. What are we drinking? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the living water that's ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that's ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the certainty of victory that's ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you for strength for whatever we face that's ours in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we will pursue that, Father. Pursue our love for you, our desire to serve you, our desire to walk with you. And Father, we pursue giving that message to the world around us. Father, they desperately need to hear about the wonder of your son, Jesus Christ. Because, Father, there's another voice that's calling them, and it's a strong voice. It's an alluring voice. It's a voice that leads to death and destruction. So, Father, by your Spirit, empowered by your Spirit, empowered by the, compelled by the love of Christ, Lord, may we go forth that message. And, Father, is anybody here today that does not have the certainty of a relationship with you and Jesus Christ, Father, enable them to see the future as it's outlined. Father, more than that, enable them to see the love of Christ at the cross and be drawn to that, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.